Prince William and Kate, baby George, got a lot of press back in 2013. Everywhere, everywhere you went, turning on the news or reading the newspaper, there was news about the, the baby uh, prince being born. Jesus didn't get much press and hardly was noticed, except by one unusual group of people that we're going to talk about today. In Matthew's Gospel, where we re- read about these unusual group of people, um, he's, he's about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's writing to demonstrate the validity of, of Jesus being the Messiah, particularly to a Jewish audience who, by and large, have rejected the reality of Christ being the Messiah. So um, he's spent the first part of chapter 1 in his gospel talking about his descent from Abraham and, and uh, David. And then there was an unusual circumstances in Jesus' conception and birth, and so that had to be dealt with. So he proved that Jesus had a legitimate claim to being a descendant of David, even though he wasn't fathered by Joseph, who was a descendant of David, by the fact that he married Mary, and she uh, had the baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. Miracle. So that's a big story that was um, not, by and large, captured by the people of his day. But we, we get it. We have it. So we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, to see about another part that had to be true of the Messiah was that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, where David was born. So Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we'll get this story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Father, we're amazed at how you brought Jesus into the world. And we're thankful that you brought him into the world. The world did lay in sin and death. And you sent the Prince of Life. You did it in a way that we we would not have done it. But we're impressed with how you did it, bringing him humbly 
in, a, in an amazing package of a human baby, and growing up to be a human man, and, and yet also the Son of God. So may we grasp the, these truths today afresh in our hearts. Help us by your Spirit to hear your, your word. Help me to make it clear. Teach us, Father. In Christ we pray. Amen. So we got wise men from the east after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is another word for Judah, southern portion of Israel, y'all. We don't, we don't have the backstory in Matthew's gospel about how they got to Bethlehem. Luke does that for us. And it was in the days of Herod. This is Herod the Great, or not so great, as you, depending on your point of view, Herod the Great was a half-Jew, half-Idumean, half-Edomite, half from Esau, Jacob's brother. And through accommodation to the Romans, he ascended to power as a ruler of Israel in 37 B.C. He was known as a great builder of public works and a shrewd diplomat in his dealings with both Romans and Jews, but he, he laid oppressive taxes upon the people and forced labor from the Israelites. As Herod grew older, he became increasingly paranoid about threats against his person and his throne. He had numerous sons, wives, and others close to him put to death because he feared plots to overthrow him. After frequent disputes with Caesar Augustus, the emperor at that time, Caesar uttered some famous words that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son, which is... Sad to have that said about you. And behold, or check this out, literally, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. Literally, that's magi, wise men, were called magi. The word is magi. Magi were originally a Persian priestly caste who played an important role in advising the king. The term became applied to well-educated men who specialized in astrology, interpretation of dreams, and sometimes magic arts. You get the word magic from magi. Magi were found all over the Roman Empire, but they're most often connected with Babylon. They naturally begin their search for a place where you might expect to find a potential king of the Jews by going to Jerusalem. So like if you're looking for a president... You come to Washington, D.C., you're looking for king of the Jews, you go to Jerusalem. So keep that in mind. In verse 2, we have them asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the one born king of the Jews? Their question assumes one has been born who has a birthright to being king of Israel. And they assume that the news of this king's birth would be obvious and widespread through the city. Of course it would be, right? How do they know such a baby has been born? Well, they saw a star when it rose. How do they know this star was a sign that the king of the Jews has been born? Some believe their knowledge of a Jewish Messiah, per se, came from uh, Daniel and other Jews when they were in exile in the 6th century B.C. But that still doesn't tell us how, um, how they associated a star with the birth of, of the Messiah, of the Jewish king. Did God somehow intervene in their star searching in some kind of miraculous way uh, to reveal that this one star was signifying the birth of the king? We really don't know. 
they are certain of the star's meaning. They're not saying, hey, we wonder if this king of the Jews has been born. No, they, they know the king of the Jews has been born, and they're just saying, where is he? Somebody here should know. Some see this as a fulfillment of a prophecy uttered by Balaam, a kind of obscure guy back in the Old Testament. And it's in Numbers 24, 7. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So a, a star representing a king rising out of Israel. Could be. And then there are the theories about the nature of the star. We just can't resist theories of the nature of the star. So some say it might have been a comet. Cupid. Donner. Red nose reindeer. Some say it was a conjunction of planets, and the favorite idea here is Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces. Jupiter meant something royal, Saturn meant the westland, so west of Persia, west of Babylon was Palestine or Israel, and Pisces represented the last days, so you got a king born in, in Palestine in the last days. Or some think it was a, a nova or a supernova which is absurd because everybody knows that Chevys weren't invented back then. And how could a small Chevy have been launched into outer space? And if you're new here for the first time, yes, my jokes are really that bad. Just kind of that pathetic. Hey! What is amazing is that these pagan wise men came all this way to worship this baby king of the Jews. I mean, that's incredible. If they had traveled from the usual route from Babylon, and you all know the usual route from Babylon, it's 800 miles, and they're going 20 miles a day, it takes them 40 days to get there, so that's quite a trip. How could it be that the only people who knew the Christ, the Messiah, was born, besides Mary and Joseph and maybe some shepherds and perhaps John the Baptizer's parents, how is it that the only people who know of the birth of the Christ are these pagan wise men, these magi? I wonder if this foreshadows the overall rejection of Jesus by his own people and the reception by those who are not his people. Well, verse 3, we have um, Herod uh, getting worried. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled. Herod is paranoid of one born as king of David's lineage because Herod didn't have the true lineage to be the king. He had no such right. Why is all Jerusalem disturbed with him? Well, because when you have a paranoid, jealous king who has a history of killing even his own family members, when he's disturbed, you're disturbed. When he's worried, you're worried. When Herod is freaking out, Jerusalem is worried that Herod is freaking out. Like, man, let's hope he doesn't go off. For Jerusalem, a Messiah is nice in theory. But when faced with the real possibility of disturbing the present order, their fear of change overrides their faith in God's promise of deliverance and glorious change through the Messiah. It may be that all Jerusalem being disturbed foreshadows their rejection of Christ as well. And for many, uh, a baby Jesus in a manger with sheep, cows, and shepherds is a happy, warm, relatively harmless symbol of Christmas. But when faced with the reality that Christ came to save us from sin and for living joyfully under his lordship, that can mess up your plans, depending on what your plans are. 
We're not sure we want to risk potentially radical change. We would rather remain comfortable in our known discomfort than yield ourselves to Jesus' lordship. It's, it's like um, good health. We like it in theory, but we fear yielding ourselves to the lordship of medical professionals or um, a change in lifestyle and diet, God forbid. And then in verse 4, Herod has to consult the religious professionals. He knows enough to know that the king of the Jews is referring to the Messiah, but he doesn't know when the Messiah is going to be born or where he's supposed to be born, actually. And so he asks the, um, the scribes and the chief priests of the people where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And so in verse 5 and 6, we see that. They tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, the priests and scribes tell Herod that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. The kings were to come from Judah, so Judea and Judah, same thing, southern Israel. And the tribe of Judah was the kingly tribe and through which David came. And so the kings had to descend through Judah, through David. And they get that from the prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. They quote it, uh, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They get some of the verbiage actually from later on in, in uh, Micah and also from Second Samuel. So he's going to be a shepherd kind of leader. David was born in Bethlehem. And so this is Matthew's main point. He's demonstrating that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He had to be. He couldn't have been born in, in Lhasa, Tibet. He couldn't have been born in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, or in Rome, or in Manhattan, or in Jerusalem. He had to be born in Bethlehem. Since Jesus wasn't there very long, it was kind of missed. It came off the radar screen, and later on there was a controversy. Hey, everybody knows he lives in Nazareth. How could he be the Messiah? He wasn't from Bethlehem. And, and actually, so Matthew's demonstrating he was born in, Beth in Bethlehem. In verses 7 and 8, Herod summons the wise men and, and asks them from what time the star had appeared. He's thinking that the Messiah was born or that the king was born uh, at the time the star first appeared. And later on, he uses it as the basis for putting a bunch of uh, all the baby boys to death, sadly, in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. Probably it wasn't fully two years since that star rose. But he's trying to make sure he covers all his bases and he's taking no chances. So when he gives the instructions to kill all the babies, he's just making sure that there's no guesswork involved whatsoever. So Herod was an evil maniac. And then in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The Magi had seen the star when it first rose, and prompt, that prompted them to go to Jerusalem. They weren't actually following the star all the way from Babylon. They saw the star. They had, for however they made the determination, they recognized this meant there's a king born in, in, in uh, Israel, king of the Jews, and so they went to Jerusalem. But now the star actually goes ahead of them. That's why it's highly unlikely the star was an actual ball in outer space, light years away, composed of 
hydrogen and helium that burns by means of nuclear fusion. It's simply, I think, a miracle of God, especially designed miraculous manifestation of God's glory. Um, otherwise, maybe it was a drone. They might have had good Christmas deals on drones. Who knows? They already know from Herod that they are to look for the child in Jerusalem, I mean in Bethlehem, and, and Bethlehem's only five or six miles away, so they don't need the star to lead them there. It's, the road to Bethlehem is pretty easy to figure out. But the star moves ahead of them and actually stops over the place where the baby king is. And then in verse 10, we have this amazing statement. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They know the star has confirmed the location of the baby king. So this has been no mere political formality. Some just say, well, they were just like doing a state visit, just honoring the birth of a king. This is not what this is. It's not a political formality for them. It's not been just intellectual curiosity that they have pursued in the normal course of their astrological and religious studies. They're rejoicing with maximum exaltation. They're rejoicing like crazy. They rejoice with great joy very much, literally. To what extent did these magi know what kind of king they were about to see? I don't know for sure, but their mega joy at knowing what they had found, what they, what they were looking for, so, so they could worship a newborn Jewish king is amazing. Worshiping a baby king and they don't even seem to have their zeal quenched because the king is born in the little town of Bethlehem. A little hick town. Reminds me of the parable that Jesus told. It's like a one-verse parable in Matthew 13, 34, I think, 44. I think we have that. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This parable is of the man who discovers the kingdom of God, meaning he discovers Christ and his saving reign and rule. And he's so joyful that he can't help himself but to sell everything that he has and buy the whole field just to get the treasure. He values the treasure so much that he's willing to give everything he has. This is true of, of these magi. They're so joyful that they've found the king that, that they're willing to give great treasures. Um, Iranian-American pastor Saeed Abedini is spending his third Christmas in prison in Iran for his faith in Christ. He is, one of Iran's, he is in one of Iran's harshest prisons, the Rajai Shah prison. He is like the man in Jesus' parable who discovered the kingdom of heaven that is Jesus, the Savior King. In his joy, in Saeed's joy, he has sold all that he has and that he has devoted his life to serving Christ regardless of the cost and not forsaking his faith in Christ. In his 2014 Christmas letter from prison, he writes, and this is a man who's been apart from his family for three years, his daughters and his wife, and been beaten much. Christmas means that God came so that he would enter your hearts today and transform your lives and to replace your pain with indescribable joy.
hopefully um, none of us end up in prison for our faith because that's hard and we don't want that to happen. But for a man like this to be able to say indescribable joy is what I'm experiencing and I'm sharing that with others is is a miracle that only Jesus can give. Well, we'll look some more at that in relation to the next verse, in verse 11, where they go to the house and they see the child and they bring out their treasures. Just a point of interest, going to the house, uh, some have assumed for sure that he can't be in the same location, Jesus can't be in the same location he was in the night he was born because he's in the house and before he was in the stable. Only don't be so sure about that because actually it never says anywhere that Jesus was in a stable. You don't have to trash your manger scenes. It did say he was put in a manger. It just didn't say he was in a stable in Luke's gospel. So the scenario was this. Um, the houses of that time had a raised living area. Animals were brought into the lower section at night. Mangers were put on the edge of the raised living area, so they had easy access to the baby animals and to the feeding and, and for feeding trough, because a manger was a feeding trough. And actually, the word for inn could also be a word for guest room. So if there was no room in the guest room in the house, you put Jesus in the next most comfortable spot in a manger. So it's not a big deal. He may or, they may or may not be in the same house, but they might be in the same house that they were if they were in the house to begin with, not necessarily in the stable. Okay, so that's your you can keep your, your manger scenes for sure. At last, they do get to do what they came to do, worship one born king of Israel, the king of the Jews. They fulfill their rejoicing by falling down and worshiping him, lavishing upon him the gifts of the wealthy. Gold is the ultimate gift of value, as it is now or was then. Frankincense was expensive perfume. You you can get some at Macy's. And myrrh was luxury cosmetic fragrance, gifts fit for a king. Expressions of joyful worship. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the um, Chronicles of Narnia and tons of other books, writes this, All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. He says, I I think we, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. We know this is true because we experience it all the time, every day. We, we do this, um, it's something we naturally are, are compelled to do. We do it with sports teams and sporting events. If you are a Seattle Seahawks fan and you like football, and Russell Wilson nearly gets sacked, and he escapes. And he fires a pass to Jermaine Kearse for a touchdown. You rejoice. And your wife doesn't have to say, Honey, come on, get excited. Oh, what, what happened? No, you, you verbalize it, or you do something with your body, or with your vocal cords. And, and you continue eating your chips. When you ace the test that you studied so hard for that you thought you were going to fail, you rejoice and you express it somehow. 
when you uh, see a friend that you haven't seen for years, you don't have to tell tell you what to do. You rejoice. You hug them. You you say yay. You jump up and down. You... When one year old says her first word, which is always going to be daddy. And you clap and speak words of praise, don't you? Your four-year-old rejoices to see you when you come home and runs and hugs you. When your 14-year-old, who no longer worships you, actually cleans his room, you shout for joy over all the earth. When your son or daughter graduates from high school or college, when they get married, you don't say, oh, well, that was nice. You, you respond with tears of joy, words of joy, words of praise, embrace. You eat lots of food. You celebrate. Meanwhile, forgetting about the tuition and wedding costs for a bit. <laughs> Expressing our joy with words and actions of praise and worship is so normal and everyday. When you enjoy a good meal, when you read a good book, when you see a good movie, when you go to a good play, when you hear good music... Um, you, you express it, you share it in some kind of words or actions. Our student ministries leaders took a retreat that was by the ocean, and they exclaimed about how amazing the high waves were. But even more than that, they, they had a great time of sharing and encouraging one another and, and discovering God's uh, good work in their lives, and they ex- shared that with joy and praise and thanksgiving. So that's what we do. It's just what we do. Why are these wise men worshiping the baby Jesus? In light of their mega rejoicing and their whole purpose in coming to honor a baby king from a lineage that had no ruling king for centuries, they are clearly not just going through a political formality to honor the royal family. It's obvious that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy royalty. Did they have faith in Christ? I mean, did they, were they saved by faith in Christ that they had? I don't know for sure about that, but I know that Matthew put them here because they were an example of what saving faith does. Saving faith believes Jesus is the Savior King, even though his kingdom is not fully revealed. It's not fully here yet because we still die and the world's still corrupt. There wasn't uh, any outward glory, no recognition or celebration by the religious political elites for the Magi to be inspired But saving faith rejoices. It sees through the lack of human impression evidence and sees through the reality of Christ and rejoices in him, which inevitably expresses itself in worship and praise and glorifying him. We see this in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If we hear about Christ through the gospel of his coming as a human, living the perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead for our salvation and to bring in the kingdom of God, we believe in him and love him. We rejoice with joy that can't be described and yet is filled with glory, with worship and praise. We just love to give glory and honor to Jesus. 
This doesn't mean we're always exuberantly praising God, experiencing the emotion of joy. It does mean that although we are grieved by various trials, this is the context of 1 Peter's written, yet we continue to find joy in the midst of sorrows because of Jesus, the Savior King, and it results in our giving glory to Christ, giving credit to him for his goodness and his grace. A woman from our former church who taught our kids piano uh, wrote us a letter, and she's, she's got massive suffering going on in her family, but she encourages us and, and exudes grace and praise to Jesus. And with that, it humbles us and causes us to, to give thanks to Jesus as well. Like the wise men, rejoicing in Christ is not because we see yet all that he is and all that he is going to do, because we don't see him. We haven't seen him yet. We haven't seen the fullness of his salvation. It's by faith, knowing that because the king has arrived, we will surely receive final and full salvation. In the book Unbroken, which the movie is going to be released in Christmas, I'm trying to finish the book for the movie, of the story of Louis Zamperini, the American POW, he rejoices, they rejoice when they see the American bombers flying over Japan. They weren't yet rescued, but they had faith in their military that they would be victorious and that in, in that victory they would be saved. And so we know that Christ is going to pull it off. We know he, he's, he's inaugurated the rescue and it's going to be successful. In verse 12, the, the closing verse, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Well, Herod was not really about to come worship the baby king. He wants to hear back from the wise men so he can have the competition eliminated. So God warns them in a dream not to go to Herod or to even text him. Just making sure you're still tuned in. They return home by another way. And what Herod meant for evil in finding that the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, and sending the wise men to find the baby king, God meant for good. He gave us this unusual confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior King born in Bethlehem, as promised. An example of joyful, worshiping faith that gives of time, talents, and treasures. I'm really impressed with how God did this. Jesus said, I am the, the root and offspring of David. In the book of Revelation, you go to the very end, Revelation 22. I'm the root and offspring of David. I'm the, I'm the Messiah. I'm the cause of David. I'm the descendant of David. And I'm the bright morning star. So Jesus is the star of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom is not the wisdom of this world. You have proven your son to be the Messiah, the Savior King, for everyone who puts their trust and faith in him. Cause us, Father, to live out what this text tells us, that Jesus is cause for exceedingly great joy and worship and praise of our whole lives, our lives as living sacrifices for him. And he came in humility, Father, because it's, it's, a humbly, it's a humble, messy work to save people from sin. And yet it's a powerful work that only the Son of God could do. So you wrapped him, the Son of God, in a humble package of a servant 
a human baby, not widely recognized by his own people, by the religious or political elite. You pulled off a tremendous rescue, and we're so grateful for that. Father, may we know him more deeply, more truly, more sincerely, more robustly. May we value him above everything and everyone. May our lives be wholly devoted to him. May all, Father, know him savingly, putting their trust in, in the Christ child who grew up, died the death we should have died, was raised from death in victory over sin and death, and who is coming back to bring in a perfect, perfect salvation and perfect kingdom. Amen.